If you are a woman who grew up in the 1980s and 90s, as I did, you probably had one. Or if you are a baby boomer, you probably gifted a set to someone you knew, a daughter, a niece, a granddaughter, or even a friend. And if you are a man, or heck, even if you were just alive during that time, you may remember seeing them. Or who knows, maybe you even had one yourself. It's all good. I'm talking about those best friend heart necklaces. Do you remember those? You had two necklaces, each with half a heart or half a design, so that when you brought the necklaces together, they would make the full shape. I definitely had one, although I really can't remember whether or not I was gifted the other half or if I gifted the other half to any of my friends or if I just wore it because it was, like, trendy and gimmicky. We can do a deep psychological dive on that one later. The point, though, was obvious. You would share the necklace and therefore proclaim your devotion to your bestie for all the world to see. You were half as great alone, but coming together in full force, you two could be unstoppable. Best friends forever. That's the thing about gift giving. It's one of the primary ways to solidify a relationship. But what happens when gifting goes suddenly wrong and alters a friendship for good? Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. And today, we are continuing our series on great rivals in art history with two wonderful friends whose relationship soured over a single painting. This is the story of Edward Manet and Edgar Degas. Welcome to the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. The rivalry between Edward Manet and Edgar Degas isn't a rivalry in the same way that the relationship between Turner and Constable was, or even Raphael and Michelangelo. As we've discussed in our previous episodes this season, those two battles were competitiveness writ large, angst built around envy for one another's works, and a wish to be at the very top of their game, besting even their close friends. But that wasn't the case with Edward and Edgar. Those guys were actually really good friends, and then they had one massive falling out before coming together again in a sort of camaraderie, even though that, too, wouldn't last forever. But to me, their one huge meltdown is an example of that cliché about the artistic temperament, that ultra-sensitive soul who gets his feelings hurt and then responds wildly. We're going to follow that rift between these two artists today. Edward Manet was born in Paris on January 23, 1832, as the first son of Auguste Manet, a high-ranking civil servant in the Ministry of Justice, and Eugénie Fournier, the daughter of a French diplomat posted to Stockholm. There will be no story of the poor, struggling artist here, because Manet's family was an upper-class family with strong political connections and the cash to back up his chosen career, which wasn't originally going to be art at all. His first dream was to become a high-ranking naval officer, but poor Manet was not a very promising student. His secondary school called his work, quote, wholly inadequate, and when he attempted to pass the entrance exam to the Naval Academy, he bombed it. 
Nevertheless, he grabbed a spot on the training ship bound for Rio de Janeiro, and the 16-year-old Manet gives the life of the sea a good old college try, so to speak. But when the ship returned to France the following year, he tried again to pass the entrance exam for the Naval Academy to no avail. Surely that was a really depressing time for Edward Manet, but he did make lemonade out of those lemons and thought back to the many drawings and caricatures that he made of officers aboard that training ship. Why not try for a career in art instead? So, with his parents' reluctant blessing, and their funding too, Manet gave the life of a painter a shot. And oh man, am I glad that he did. The next decade of Edouard Manet's life is spent typically doing those things that a 19th century artist would do. He first enrolled as a student on the Register of Copyists working at the Louvre, then moved on to some more official training via the studio of the academic painter Thomas Couture. But it seems that this time period left Manet with some uncertainty too, and he frequently complained to Couture and his fellow students, saying, quote, I don't know what I'm doing here. Nevertheless, those complaints were all for naught because Manet didn't leave. In fact, he ended up staying under Couture's tutelage for six whole years. During that time, too, he took a trip to Italy with his younger brother, Eugène, and they had an extremely productive time in Florence, where Edouard made copies of various works by old master painters, such as Fra Filippino Lippi and, most tellingly, Titian's masterpiece Venus of Urbino, a seductive nude that would rather importantly make a lasting impression on him. By 1859, Manet was feeling confident enough in his abilities, at age 27, to submit a painting to the Paris Salon, the most important art exhibition of the year, and probably the most important art exhibition in all of Europe at that time. We talked a little bit about the importance of the Royal Academy's summer exhibition in our episode on Turner and Constable, but suffice to say that if the summer exhibition was big in London, the Paris Salon was huge. More than huge. Anyone who was anyone attempted to be seen in and at the salon, and it was important enough that artists from other countries even tried to break into it. In 1859, Manet presented a work modeled after the style of the great Spanish master Diego Velázquez, a piece called The Absinthe Drinker. This was to become Manet's first great painting and shows the artist delving headfirst into that modern obsession, the street. Life of those who spent their time in the streets, like prostitutes, vagabonds, and the destitute, that was so fascinating to 19th century poets, writers, and artists who felt that they most truly represented what modern life was all about, rather than those stuffy, upper-class moors. Interestingly, Manet's absinthe drinker seems to straddle these worlds, as he looks to be a drunk loitering in some shadowy alley, but he's actually someone who's dressed in a brown coat and a ridiculously tall top hat as if he's actually a reputable member of high society. Very strange. What's even odder is the angle of his legs in comparison to the trunk of his body. It's almost like they were tacked on as an afterthought. And those shadows that we mentioned? They aren't consistent with observation of actual light and shadows. The whole thing is fascinating and a little bit of a mess. And maybe that, along with its lowbrow subject matter, is why it was rejected by the Paris Salon. No doubt this was a considerable blow to Manet, but like a moth to a flame, he kept at it, going back year after year, intent on breaking through to that highest echelon of artistic achievement. In 1861, for example, he was admitted to the Salon, and one of his works, called The Spanish Singer, was even awarded an honorable mention. 
This is it. He made it, right? Well, at one of the next calls for the salon, every single painted he proposed was denied outright once more. Jumping ahead in perspective here just for a minute, when we talk about the advent of modernism, one of those pivotal moments in art where everything could change drastically forever, moving to more abstraction and experimentation in styles, techniques, and subject matter, for example, one of the names that pops up as the so-called father of modernism is Edward Manet. Usually the mantle of first modernist is argued as being either between Manet and another Frenchman, Gustave Courbet, but regardless of who wins that personal battle of opinion, it must be noted that Manet would eventually become a turning point in all of art history. He is that important. But at this particular time in his career, Manet was still trying to find his way, and his goals and hopes were terribly old-fashioned. Despite his interest in the modern world, which grew every day, he was still in the academic style of painting, studying Rubens, Velazquez, Titian, Leonardo, and so many of the big names who came before him. That was what he wanted, and his goals, like being in the salon, followed suit. And that was pretty different from what would be the ultimate goal of another artist whom he met one day while studying art at the Louvre. That's coming up next, after this break. Summer is the perfect time to dive deeply into topics that already interest you or to find something totally new. I'm doing that right now by watching and listening to The Great Courses Plus. I love these wonderful lectures where I get the opportunity to learn from engaging experts who give me unlimited access to so many amazing topics. Everything from history, math, science, music, even how to cook or to take better photos, which is perfect for a summer travel season. So with the Great Courses Plus app, you can watch or listen wherever you want, which is, again, perfect for taking road trips or long plane rides. This time I'm recommending checking out their course on the great artists of the Italian Renaissance. This is one of my favorite periods of art, and there is so much to learn. Really wonderful chance to look at the artists and masterpieces that defined the Italian Renaissance and inspired the next 500 years of Western art. You can learn everything about artists like Michelangelo, Botticelli, Leonardo, and others who created these incredible works of art during the political and religious turmoil of the 16th century. This is the perfect course to get started with, or of course you can choose from any of the options on The Great Courses Plus. So right now, my listeners will receive a free trial of unlimited access to the entire library. So sign up now through my special URL to get started. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. Do it now, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. Today's episode of Art Curious is sponsored by Renolda House Museum of American Art, where you can find one of the nation's most highly regarded collections of American art on view in a beautiful, unique domestic setting. The restored 1917 mansion of R.J. and Catherine Reynolds, surrounded by gorgeous gardens and peaceful walking trails. As a North Carolinian, I've enjoyed numerous visits to Rinalda, especially over the last few years. And I've gotta say that not only is it a place to see world-class art, but to do so in such a breathtaking and charming setting is truly a wonderful experience. Upcoming exhibitions include Dorothea Lange's America in fall 2018 and Hopper to Pollock, American Modernism in spring 2019. You can browse Ronolda's art and decorative arts collections and see what's coming up next at their website, ronoldahouse.org. That's R-E-Y-N-O-L-D-A house.org. And even better, visit in person in historic Winston-Salem, North Carolina. 
We care about all the ingredients in the food we eat and the beauty products we use, so why shouldn't the same be for our feminine care products? Lola is a female-founded company offering a line of organic cotton tampons, pads, and liners, and they started their company with one simple and pretty obvious idea, which is that women shouldn't have to compromise when it comes to feminine care products. Lola products come in these simple, customizable subscriptions, so you'll never need to make another frantic trip to the drugstore. And Lola will then also deliver exactly what you need, exactly what you want, and exactly when you need it. So with Lola, you can build your box by picking the perfect mix of products, and then you can also decide how many boxes you would like delivered to your door and how often. Lola subscription is also super flexible, so you can change, skip, or cancel at any time. And not only can you feel good about the environmentally friendly organic options of items that you're putting into your body, you can also do further good with your purchase. Because for every purchase that you make, Lola will donate feminine care products to homeless shelters across the U.S. I really love the convenience factor of Lola because it just comes right to my door. I never have to think about it. And also it comes in this cute, really discreet box that I can have personalized totally to my needs. So I never have to worry about trying to find exactly what I want on the fly. If you want to get 40% off of all your Lola subscriptions, visit mylola.com and enter promo code ART when you subscribe. So don't forget, 40% off of all subscriptions. That's M-Y-L-O-L-A.com and enter promo code ART. Like the beginning of a rom-com, Edward Manet and Edgar Degas met by chance around 1862 while copying the same work of art by Velasquez at the Louvre. And like Manet, Degas, who was two years younger, was originally in that academic art, history painting is king, mindset. By this point, Manet had become a convert to depicting modern Parisian life, and he would hold enough sway with his new friend that Degas would quickly convert too. But he was quicker to leave behind expectations than Manet was. Degas seemed to be a little bit of a rebel, perhaps even a proto-hipster, in his hopes to go at it alone, opting frequently to exhibit with the Impressionists instead of the old-school artists he used to love. He would audibly disapprove of Manet's persistent efforts to succeed within the academic art world, and he made it a point to reject conventions and art world recognition. The ironic part, though? Edgar Degas would submit works consistently to the Paris Salon, and they were most often accepted unlike Manet's works. So he must not have rejected convention and recognition all that much, at least not initially. Born in Paris on July 19, 1834 to a wealthy banking family, Edgar Degas rigorously planned at an early age for a career as a history painter. Unfortunately, Degas, unlike Edward Manet, had a pretty unsupportive father who totally disapproved of his son's career aspirations. Craving his father's approval, Degas dutifully enrolled himself into law school in 1853, but he really never took his eyes off the artistic prize. While applying minimal effort to his law studies, he registered as a copyist at the Louvre, just like Manet had done, and he began sketching works of art there whenever he could spare the time. When he met his art hero, Jean-Auguste Dominique Ingres, in 1855, that finally tipped the scales completely, and Degas no longer denied his passion. He enrolled at the School of Fine Arts, ditched law, and began to pursue art wholeheartedly. Studying abroad in Italy and making the grand tour before returning to Paris in the late 1850s and settling down to a helpful career as a great history painter. When Degas met Manet, the older painter's interests and style 
caused little fractures to occur within Degas' own thoughts about what art could and should be. Of course Degas didn't drop history painting overnight and jump headfirst into Parisian nightlife scenes, but even though it wasn't a dramatic shift, it would end up being a total one. Degas made his official debut with works accepted into the Salon in 1865, and he continued to be accepted every year for the next five years. However, only one year into the Salon career, he had moved away from history painting entirely, inspired not only by Manet, but by other artists working in experimental styles, like Renoir, Monet, and also by bold modernist writers like Zola and Mallarmé. This is the Degas that most of us think of when his name comes to mind. The Degas of ballet dancers, milliners, horse jockeys, and cafe singers, dramatically spotlit and with a flurry of soft brushstrokes. Take, for example, his rehearsal for the ballet on stage from around 1874 and today in the collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. It's a complicated scene with an oddly elevated angle, showing the stage from off to the right and slightly above what would be the orchestra pit. A slew of dancers are around, and some are practicing at the center of the stage at the behest of a suited dance master dramatically lit from below, while most of them, and especially the ones closest to us, are waiting their turn in the wings. It's so funny, because the action isn't so much in the dancing, but in the non-dancing. Ballerinas are stretching, yawning, tying their shoes, and even scratching their backs, all while two mysterious men slouch nearby in chairs, watching their every move. The waiting dancers are bored, not graceful, and the men seem predatory. And indeed, there's always been this link, warranted or not, between sugar daddies and these young, beautiful things of the stage, seeking companionship in all its forms. This may explain why the work was denied publication by the Illustrated London News on the grounds of, quote, impropriety. It all looks pretty, but man, there is something going on under there. By the way, this particular painting was purchased in 1889 by another painter, one Walter Sickert. Remember him from previous episodes? So Degas and Manet were like peas in a pod. They both sought to present the same aspects of Parisian life, and they each defended each other's works to anyone who dared criticize them. Degas was even fervent in his support of his friend, especially in 1863 and 1865, when Manet shocked all of Paris with two paintings practically back to back. For the Napoleon III decreed art exhibition of Paris Salon Rejects, called the Salon de Refusé, Manet brought a work called Déjeuner sur l'herbe, or Luncheon on the Grass. It's here that Manet's status as an art history nerd really shines through, as his composition is a deft quoting of three figures from a lost work by Raphael called The Judgment of Paris, known primarily today via an engraving after it by Marc-Antonio Raimondi. It's also a nice little callback to works of one of his other favorite painters, Titian. Here, Manet shows a picnic lunch held by two impeccably dressed men and one buxom nude woman who stares at us viewers knowingly. And to the viewers and critics who saw the work at the Salon Refusé, it was obscenity itself. And then there came Olympia, his submission for the Paris Salon of 1865. Oh, Olympia. I gotta love this painting, because really it is just a loving, gentle, if edgy, update of Titian's Venus of Urbino. Such a direct quote of the Renaissance master, but transformed from an image of a perfect, seductive goddess 
to a wary and weary Parisian prostitute. It's cheeky and subversive, and it, of course, was rejected outright by the Salon. But Degas backed up his buddy. Those two were in it thick and thin, through scandal and rejection, hope and progress. They had each other's backs. That is, until 1869. A few years into their friendship, our two artists decided to do something that is like the artsy version of exchanging those friendship necklaces. These two best friends decided to swap paintings, intending to gift each other personal and meaningful works of art. Edward Manet gave a beautiful still life of plums to his dear pal. To which I say, huh. Because with a distance of 150 plus years, I know Manet as this avant-garde painter who would indelibly affect modern art with his provocative yet smart canvases. And to me, a painting of plums sounds underwhelming, to say the least. But it turns out that still lifes were on the rise in the 1860s, and they had grown exceedingly popular at the time. So Manet's choice of a still life painting is like your buddy giving you an Alexa or an Apple Watch or something. And it turned out that Manet's still lifes were actually enjoyed by most of Paris. So while he was slammed for his paintings of nudes, critics did not disparage his still life canvases, which were considered his better work despite only forming one-fifth of his oeuvre. And naturally, Degas loved plums. All in all, it was a pretty sweet gift, right? What's more interesting, though, is what Edgar Degas gifted to his friend. He chose to present something far more personal and intimate, a double portrait of Manet and his wife, Suzanne, with Suzanne playing the piano and Edward reclining languidly, listening. The contrast between the Manets is striking. Suzanne, in a white dress, is upright and proper, while Edward, in a black suit, laces about with one hand supporting his head and another shoved into his pocket. His cheeks are flushed and his expression is something. Is it dreamy? Relaxed? Bored? Either way, it is a fascinating image. And at first glance, this gift exchange seems to have done what gift exchanges are meant to do, to show your pals that you appreciate them, are thinking about them, and that your friendship matters. Except when Dagon next visited his friend's home, there was his painting, that double portrait, slashed apart. The portrait had been severed neatly, with the right third of the canvas sliced away. The weird thing, though, is that the problem with the canvas seems to have been the depiction of Suzanne Manet. So imagine it. After living with the portrait for several days, Manet becomes increasingly bothered by what he's seen, and at some point becomes, what, incensed? Or is he simply in a critical phase as an artist? So he takes his knife, but he doesn't cut Suzanne out of the picture entirely. Instead, he cuts the canvas right down the middle of her body, from her temple onto her feet. Her rounded shoulders and her backside remain, but her profile and those piano-playing hands, they're gone. That's the strangest thing of all to me. Unfortunately, Manet's reasoning for this was not saved to history, so we will always be left to wonder. But Degas' response was recorded. In a conversation with the famed art dealer Ambroise Vollard, Degas noted, quote, to think it was Manet who did that. He thought that something about Madame Manet wasn't right. Well, I am going to restore Madame Manet. What a shock I had when I saw it at Manet's house. I left without saying goodbye, taking my picture with me. When I got home, I took down a little still life he had given me. 
Monsieur, I wrote, I am returning your plums. Author Otto Friedrich follows the through line of this tale in his book Olympia, Paris in the Age of Manet, and writes that Degas did indeed try to make good on this effort to restore Madame Manet. But it didn't all go as planned. As Friedrich writes, quote, Degas never did get around to repairing his portrait of Suzanne at the piano, and so it remains a strangely mutilated relic, a memento of some inexplicable fury in Manet. Whatever it was he so disliked in Degas' portrait, he decided to fix himself. He painted Suzanne exactly in the same pose, in profile at the piano. But if he thought Degas' version was unflattering, he hardly remedied that. He actually shows us a stolid and heavy woman at least 10 years older than Suzanne's actual 38. In future pictures, indeed, he often painted her from the back or apologetically shadowed her face. But here he defiantly portrays a big-nosed, rubicund woman who is simply ugly. And strangely enough, she is not really playing the piano. Her hands simply lie motionless on the keyboard. If music was her artistic contribution to the household, Manet apparently neither heard it nor saw it. One is left wondering, based on Manet's various responses and images of his own wife, if perhaps the marriage wasn't a happy one, or if the couple was experiencing some kind of ongoing conflict. Okay, forgive me now, but I'm going to indulge in a little art world gossip. The story goes that Suzanne originally met Edouard Manet when she was hired by his father, Auguste, to teach piano to Edouard and his younger brothers. I so frequently think of piano lessons as something that a parent would typically afflict on a prepubescent child, but that wasn't the case with the Manet boys. They were actually men in their 20s when Suzanne came into their lives, and Suzanne and Edouard Manet quickly became involved, but they kept their relationship a secret for many years. The reasoning for the hush-hush nature of this is still in dispute today. Suffice to say that there is some thought that Suzanne may have been involved with Auguste Manet as well, Edward's dad. In 1852, only one year after Suzanne was hired by the Manets, she gave birth to a son, Léon Edouard, whom she would eventually pass off as her little brother before acknowledging before her death that she was indeed his mother. But the question still remains, which Manet, if either, was little Léon's daddy. Bringing it all back to the Degas picture that Manet destroyed leaves us still to wonder if there wasn't something bigger going on besides that something just wasn't right, as Degas said of Manet. Okay, gossipy aside over. That may very well be an episode for Art Curious for another day, by the way. It seems that for all of his shock and sadness, Edgar Degas ended up making amends with Edward Manet, despite the destruction of that gifted painting. As Degas noted to Vollard, Quote, how could anyone expect to stay on bad terms with Manet? With Degas holding on to the double portrait with high hopes of fixing it, now it was Manet's turn to reciprocate and return the plums that had been gifted to Degas. Alas, though, Manet up and sold it. Maybe he wasn't as affected as Degas was by their falling out and was happy to make some cash on his artwork. Maybe he specifically sold it quickly in order to get it off his hands and be rid of any bad memories that the work brought up in him. We have so many questions about this and so few answers. Although Degas and Manet mended their friendship, at least somewhat, their bond did not last for the rest of their lives. As Degas aged, he became isolated, partially because he believed that the artist's life was, and should be, a solitary one. As he became more and more of a recluse, 
his camaraderie of Manet would also fade. Meanwhile, Manet continued on with Suzanne, raising her child-slash-his-brother-slash-his-son, and Degas increasingly grew more and more misanthropic, which happened to coincide with his increasing anti-Semitism as well. Towards the end of his life, Manet had his left leg amputated due to gangrene, only to die from syphilis in 1883. Unfortunately for Degas, he would live a much longer life than his former friend, and that longer life wasn't so rosy. He was left to wander the streets of Paris alone and with worsening vision for an additional 34 years after Manet's own death, eventually passing away in 1917. It's a sad reality that some friendships don't last. Sometimes our best friends disappoint us. Sometimes we disappoint ourselves and others. But for short periods of time, there are those who flit into our lives to become our greatest supporters. Manet and Degas were that for each other even though the friendship morphed into animosity before changing back to camaraderie and then shifting to indifference. That doesn't change the fact that there was this shining moment in their lives where they were there for each other, in the middle of scandal and success. And though it's not as flashy as learning about a big blow-up between two artists, perhaps that's the part that we should be focusing most of our energies on. The friendship, the support, the admiration. Next time on the Art Curious Podcast, it's our season finale, and we are ending it with two of the biggest names in the 20th century, duking it out in a metaphorical battle for the future of modern art. That's coming up in two weeks. Subscribe now and don't miss it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, in association with Sartle.com. This is the third and final of three episodes this season that we did in collaboration with our friends at Sartle, and it was so much fun. Sartle encourages you to see art history differently. Check it out at sartle.com. That's S-A-R-T-L-E dot com. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com, and social media help is by Emily Crockett. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki. Video, content, ideas. Learn more at K-A-B-O-O-N-K-I dot com. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by AnchorLight. AnchorLight is an interdisciplinary creative space founded to foster artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition spaces, AnchorLight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com and thank you so much to the generous folks at AnchorLight for funding this third season. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. This means that you can donate to our show and it is fully tax deductible. As always, you can also go to our website for all images, information, and links to our previous episodes. That site is ArtCuriousPodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ArtCuriousPod. And remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts and tell anyone you want about the show. Check back in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in rivalries of art history.